I was on my 285th mission when I uh, was shot down. I do, I kind of, I do remember saying, oh my God, you know, this is the end of it. That's Captain Jack Inch, U.S. Navy retired. In May of 1972, he was serving as a radar intercept officer, or RIO, in the backseat of an F-4 Phantom when he and his pilot shot two North Vietnamese fighter jets out of the sky, a feat for which they would each be awarded the Navy Cross. The only higher decoration in the military is the Medal of Honor. Just a few months later, Ench found himself ejecting from his F-4 Phantom and on his way to the Hanoi Hilton, where he'd spend 216 days as a prisoner of war. In this episode, he shares his amazing story of victory and defeat, captivity and release, duty and friendship. Stick around. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, founders of The Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. I'm your host, Michael Crone, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of that conflict more than 50 years later. This is episode 44, Captain Jack Ench. Before he was commissioned by the Navy in 1965, Jack Ench had already spent eight years in the Army and the Army Reserves. In the Navy, he completed flight school and radar intercept officer training, where he learned to fly in the backseat of the F-4 Phantom. And it was that skill set that took him to Vietnam. My first deployment was 1966 on... Uh... USS Coral Sea and the F-21. Did two cruises there, well, one on Coral Sea and one on Ranger. And then my uh, my shore duty came up and I went back to uh, Pax River, Maryland, the Naval Air uh, Test Center. And I was the uh, aid and flag lieutenant for the Rear Admiral uh, Hank Miller. Spent two years there and then came back and had two more cruises on um, on Midway. And um, 70, 71, 72, 73. Well, I didn't finish the 73 cruise, but uh, I'll take credit for it anyway. 1972 is getting pretty late in the war. In an effort to accelerate ongoing peace talks, President Nixon authorized U.S. airstrikes on both Hanoi and Haiphong. B-52 bombers began making runs at strategic targets, and F-4 Phantoms were among the fighter jets that provided air cover for the bombing runs. In May of that year, Jack and his co-pilot, Lieutenant Commander Muggs McEwen, were flying missions known as MiG Caps. A MiG is a Russian-made fighter jet flown in this case by North Vietnamese forces, and CAP stands for Combat Air Patrol. Twenty-three May of seventy-two. Uh Muggs and I were uh, scheduled to be the lead on a mid-cap mission for a strike going into Hanoi, or Haiphong, really, Haiphong Harbor. 
it was kind of mountainous area up there. So you could, there was less uh, SAMs and AAA up there. So we elected to go up there and drive in. And we were going to position ourselves between uh, Kep Air Base, where their, their major jet air base was up there, and High Fong to uh, intercept anything coming down for the bombers. Um, as soon as we crossed the beach and started toward our position, um, we got a call from our controller. His call sign was Crankcase. And Crankcase called, hey, at Rock Rivers, uh, we have a bandit um, 270, 35 miles, we'll say. And uh, he said, you're a vector for them. So we followed his his direction and started flying 270. And, and uh, it was unusual. Usually they were called bogeys if they were not identified but uh, Muggs and I talked in the company and he said, did he say bandits? That meant confirmed enemy aircraft. And uh, Muggs said, yeah, I think so. So I called back to Biddle and said, did you say bandits or bogeys? He said, bandits. He said, you are cleared to arm, cleared to fire, which was, wow, that's great. Because, you know, we had Sparrow missiles as well as, uh, which is a long range, uh, longer range radar missile as well as the sidewinders, which are the heat seekers. And that was our configuration for MIGs, or for our MIG camp. Uh, so we, wow, this is great. So we started, kept following his directions in uh, these vectors toward where he said the bandits were. Um, and so I'm on a radar. Uh, that's my job, you know, trying to get a contact on him so that we could Hopefully, since they were already identified as enemy aircraft, we could have fired, if we could have got a, a good lock on, we could have fired a, a Sparrow without, you know, before we had hit the merge and started engaging. But uh, the, the F-4 radar was, the F-4B radar was designed as a, a over, over water interceptor. So you got a lot, a lot of ground clutter that you, you had to get through to try to get to it. So I could not get a lockup on, and about the halfway into the engagement, our wingman, uh, Mike Rabb and uh, Ken Crandall, uh, Ken, the RO, he called and he said, hey, uh, he says, uh, my radar just went tango uniform, tits up. And so and we were going in there with two phantoms with one radar. Um, we kept following the controllers, uh, vectors moving us toward the, the, uh, the bandits. And uh, I finally got a, a paint on the radar screen, a blip, and I tried to lock it up, but the ground clutter just would, would not let me make a good lockup. But that didn't make much difference because by about that time, the two lead big 19s came through. And we were in a combat spread, which is a uh, you're about a mile, mile and a half apart, and slightly stepped up or stepped down on one another so you could clear each other's six and you weren't at the same altitude. And uh, at those closure speeds, it didn't take long before these two MiG-19s came. They flew right between us. Mugs called Tallyho MiG-19s. Uh, he said, cross turn, we'll go high, you go low, meaning that when we turned, we, we would be higher and they would go lower. We'd clear each other's sixes. We turned around thinking that, of course, we had our fangs out 
two of our squadron mates uh, had just shot down two 19s and a week before that up in that same area. So boy, we thought, oh, here we go. We're going to get ourselves a couple of 19s. We made a mistake. We did not properly clear behind them. We immediately turned on them, thinking that we would be on the MiG-19, six o'clock and maybe get a good shot. Um, but what we did not know, nor did our controller pick up, that there were four MiG-17s following them. And so when we broke, their plan would have been that we break between the two elements we'd be in the six o'clock of the 19s and they would be in our six, six o'clock and they could shoot us down. But they had not left enough nose to tail separation between their two elements. And instead of breaking between the two elements, we broke right into the formation of four MiG-17s. Mugs, you say, my God, it's, it's raining MiGs. So we started turning and burning with the four 17s and uh, the MiG-19s in the meantime had gone out, turned around, they came back through the fight. And uh, Mug saw one of those, he started to turn on it. And of course, once once we got engaged, uh, you know, I was out of the cockpit, uh, radar was useless in a, in a close-in dogfight. So I was, you know, clearing our six from nine o'clock around through six o'clock, three to eight, clearing our back. Mugs, his responsibility was in the in front of the airplane. So he started turning on the 19. About that time, I looked back and I saw a MiG-17 coming up at our eight o'clock. And uh, I, uh, I called out to Muggs. I said, uh, Muggs, uh, eight o'clock, uh, guy's getting close. He's getting in a firing position. And about that time, another MiG-17 came and Muggs saw this guy. He came almost canopy to canopy. To canopy. You could almost feel the, feel the airplanes as they went by each other. And but this guy at eight o'clock, he was he was starting to pull into a shooting position. And I said, Mugs, you know, do some of that pilot shit up there. So he broke off of the 19 and he was trying to get a shooting position on. And the controls that he put into the airplane, it, uh, caused the airplane just did a backflip nose over tail. And um, I, I'm fighting to try to keep track of this 17. I said, what the hell are you doing up there? I'm bouncing around the back in the cockpit. And Muggs was one of the great F4 drivers ever. And uh, he gained control of the airplane and we scooped out. And lo and behold, there was a mix 17 in front of us that turned out to be that one at eight o'clock. He had passed us and, were, and we came out behind him. And uh, we fired off a sidewinder at him, but he saw it coming. And uh, the MiG-17 could turn on a dime and we missed. We continued to turn. We got got behind a couple other MiGs and uh, mugs again. He took a shot at one and we missed again. So we're feeling pretty lousy right about that time. And I'm I'm still checking our six both sides as the fight's going on. And then I 
see one at four o'clock and this guy he was even closer than the one at eight o'clock and he was pulling in there and he was starting to shoot and i said mugs four o'clock tracking and shooting mugs looked back at him and uh he pulled very hard into the mig 17 and when he did that the mig 17 just put his nose up like that and the mig 17 could turn inside the circle of a uh, turning radius of an f4 and I'm sure this guy was blinking, well, I'll just put my nose up like that and, and these guys will eventually fly out in front of me and I start shooting again. Well, Muggs immediately realized that position of that 17 with his big bulbous nose in front of him, he couldn't see over that nose to see what we were doing because Muggs had actually flown one of the MiG-17s years ago. So he knew what the, what the guy could see or not. So he just, came into idle on the throttles, pushed full forward on the stick, and we just started building negative Gs. And as this guy kept turning, we were building separation. Finally, we had enough nose to tail separation to most scoop back in behind him like that. And about that time, this guy starts rocking his wings, looking, where in the hell are they? But then it was too late by that time because we had pulled back behind him. Mugs got a good uh, tone on the on the side winder and we fired it and that was our first kill for the day. We saw the tail blow off of the airplane and the guy ejected. And uh, by this time though, Muggs, remember back to start of the fight, we told him to go low and we'd go high. Well, they went low and they spent the entire fight down a treetop level with a MIG on their tail, one or one or two of the MIGs on their tail at any time, chasing them around treetop level. They never did get in a, a firing position. But we looked across the circle, or most did, and he saw what was going on. And he saw uh, Rookie and, and Ken uh, trying to, to get away from this MIG that was on their tail. So he directed them. He said, hey, come east or west or the hell it was and uh, dragging this way we were up high over them and as they dragged him across we did a barrel roll down in and got behind the mig on the tail of uh, rookie and ken and uh, got a good tone shot that guy off their tail We didn't see any more MIGs, thank God. And uh, we joined up on Rookie. And uh, by this time, his, the strike had already gone into uh, Hanoi or Haiphong. And uh, we're back out, feet wet. Nobody got shot down. So we scooted on out there. They had a tanker waiting for us to uh, refuel us. And they came back and landed uh, on the midway. This fight only lasted probably about six or seven minutes at, at most. It takes longer to tell what happened in a dogfight than it does for the dogfight to really happen. Came back and landed and went down in the ready room. And of course, uh, everybody was cheering us on. And uh, we were, you know, heroes for the day that day. But it was, it was a pretty exciting day.
2016, I uh, went over to Hanoi with a group of uh, other uh, Navy and Air Force pilots, and we met with a bunch of the MiG pilots in North Vietnam, and uh, they 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 hooked us up with some of the guys that we had actually fought in the war years ago, and it, the guy I met was uh, Colonel um, Colonel Lamb. He was one of the MiG-17 pilots that we had fought that day. And he was the one at first eight o'clock I told you about that song. We sat down at the dinner and, and through an interpreter, we talked about that dogfight. And I said, well, first I told him, you know, eight o'clock. And he says, yeah, he said, that was me. And he says, I saw the airplane do a backflip depart. And he said, I thought you were gone. I just flew on by. And he said, I looked back and there you were. And he took a shot at me and I defeated it. And uh, so we kept talking and, and I found out the first one, that the first guy that we shot down, he did not survive the ejection that day. He died that day. I, we didn't know that, but Colonel Lamb confirmed that that guy died. The other two and the two 19 pilots that we initially engaged, he said they died later in the war as well as Two of the other um, MiG-17 pilots were killed later in the war. So out of the six that we engaged, there were two pilots still left alive in 2016. And uh, one of them lived down in Saigon. He did not come up to uh, to the meeting, but Colonel Lamb, I, I had the pleasure of meeting him. And it was quite a, quite a, uh, quite a good experience. And uh, so I found out more about the dogfight almost 50 years later than I knew uh, five minutes later after it happened. It was their heroic actions in that dogfight that earned Jack and Muggs their Navy crosses. But that comes later. In the summer of 72, Muggs was selected to be the first official commanding officer at Top Gun, which had just been stood up as its own squadron. Jack remained in Vietnam and went back to work. So I picked up a, a, a new pilot, Lieutenant Commander Mike Doyle, on 25 August 1972. We were on a big cat mission further south in North Vietnam to another strike going in. And uh, Mike and I were in the same airplane that Muggs and I had shot the mix down in. And uh, shortly after we crossed the beach, uh, we got taken under fire by uh, <laughs> every damn Sam site in North Vietnam, it seemed to me. Several of them. And so we were starting to fight. Instead of fighting MiGs, we were fighting missiles. And we managed to, to uh, outmaneuver a couple of them, but the one we didn't see went off right over our cockpit. And uh, suddenly there was this huge explosion and charged the canopy and uh, shrapnel had partially partially severed the uh, left thumb you don't really think you just start reacting i'm a product of naval aviation training so i, I just yelled at mike i said mike can we get to the water thinking that if we could get back out over the water before we had to eject you know you have a better chance of getting picked up obviously and I got no response. I looked up through the cockpits and I realized he was slumped forward 
and I realized he was he was no longer flying that airplane. So I reached down with my good hand to an alternate ejection handle and ejected. And then the next thing I remember was hanging in a chute. Your training kicks in. Assess your landing area, see what what you're coming into. You know, you're coming into trees, whatever. Um, I looked around. I saw another chute, so I knew that Mike got out of the airplane. And I saw the plane crash. And I, as I'm looking around and reaching for my radios, which I kept in my survival vest, I realized that, you know, the, my hand wasn't doing what the computers were telling it to do. Well, with this bad hand just laying on my lap, when I hit the windstream, uh, the force of the, the air and everything dislocated both elbows and pushed them about halfway up inside of each arm. So I couldn't use my couldn't use my arms. I'm just hanging in a chute and uh, I couldn't make a radio call. I couldn't do anything. And, and the next thing I remember was uh, hearing these strange noises. We were ejected right over a, a area of big rice paddies. And uh, I woke an party down there were shooting at me. They were shooting and I, the, what I was hearing was the bullets going past me and they, Hitting the uh, hitting the canopy of the parachute, and uh, I do I kind of I do remember saying, "Oh my God, you know this is the end of it." It wasn't the end of it, and we'll bring you the rest after a short break. Stick around. I'm Gary Sinise. Nearly 3 million Americans served in Vietnam and more than 58,000 have their names inscribed on the wall. Those that pay the ultimate price in service to America. Some might ask why the Vietnam War still matters. It matters because more than 58,000 lives were cut short and their families forever changed. It matters because we should never forget how Vietnam veterans were treated when they came home. A lesson learned so that our current generation of veterans are treated with respect. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, the organization that built the wall, works to ensure that future generations will understand the war's impact. I'm asking you to help keep the promise the wall was built on. Never forget. Visit vvmf.org to find out how you can get involved. just about eight weeks away from kicking off the 2023 tour of The Wall That Heals, BVMF's exact replica of The Wall at three-quarter scale that travels to cities and towns all across America. If you want to know more about this traveling exhibit and the impact it can have on a community, check out episode 15 of this podcast. More than 100 communities applied to host The Wall That Heals this year, which is the 50th anniversary of the close of combat operations in Vietnam. The tour schedule includes more than 30 cities and towns stretching from South Carolina to Idaho and Maine to California. 
Is it coming anywhere near your town? Visit vvmf.org to find out. 2023 is shaping up to be a big year for our little podcast. We've got big plans and even bigger ambitions. But you know, it all starts with stories. So I thought we'd ask you for a little help. We're exploring a couple of topics for upcoming episodes, one on replacement companies and another on tunnel rats. If you or someone you know had either of those jobs in Vietnam, that is processing men into and out of the war, or clearing and destroying enemy tunnel complexes, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to echoes at vvmf.org to get the conversation started. Thanks, and let's get back to Jack Ensch. After ejecting from his F-4 Phantom following a missile strike, Jack Ench parachuted into enemy territory under enemy fire. His left thumb had been partially severed, and both elbows had been dislocated, rendering his arms useless. Betty and I went underwater and I fought my head out the water and, and luckily I was right near one of those walkways that separate them into various sections and I just inched my way over and fought my head up against one of those to keep it out of the water and uh, I remember then the water around me splashing and they were still shooting at me I thought what the hell you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly no threat here I'm, you know I'm banged up uh, but they stopped shooting. I heard them slushing through the water and they pulled me out of the water, took me over to a dry area and land someplace uh, near out, outside the, the rice paddies. And they stripped me of my complete, right uh, down to my my undershirt and my shorts, uh, cut all the uh, flight gear and my flight suit and boots and everything off of me. And um, a kind, kind young Vietnamese lady came by. She had a, a first aid kit. She opened it up and she tucked my thumb into the my palm of my hand, and she wrapped and wrapped and wrapped and wrapped around a big ball of of uh, gauze and tightened it up to keep the thumb from flopping around. And uh, a kind old gentleman held my head up and gave me some liquid uh, tea or something, you know, because I was. I was going into shock, I'm sure. And uh, so then after dark, they uh, loaded me onto a pallet and uh, took me down through some paths. I would estimate maybe a mile or so away from where I was shot down, maybe two, uh, until we came to a, a paved road and waiting there was a, a truck and uh, three, three or four uh, uniformed military people. Uh, the people that picked me up were not, they were just in, you know, conical hats and, and black uh, pajamas. So they turned me over to the uh, uniformed people. Uh, they blindfolded me, put me in the back of the truck and covered me up with a tarpaulin. 
and uh, so we started driving and uh, I ended up in the Hanoi Hilton that night. And they took me into a room in an area that we POWs called New Guy Village, which was a section up in the one corner of the of the big prison. And it had uh, a bunch of cells and, and an area and then a couple of, uh, we called them quiz rooms, uh, interrogation rooms. Uh, took me into this room and it had a table and chair and a stool and a, and a uh, waste can over in a corner to take care of your bodily functions if you were able to do so. And um, I took the blindfold off, threw me on the concrete floor and shut the door and left me. And a little while later they came in and uh, the guards grabbed me by my arms, made me sit on the stool in front of the table looking up an interrogator came in and he sat in the chair and he opened his book and he started asking me questions so I gave him name rank serial number day of birth I sent those required by the Geneva Convention but he had other questions for me about capabilities of my airplane what uh, ship I was with uh, what my commanding officer and, and air wing officer's name was uh various things like that. And I said, well, I can't tell you that. I said, I, I have a code of conduct I have to adhere to. And I named Frank and seven members all I'm required to give you. It's not good enough. And I said, well, please. I said, you know, you know here I am, you know, this big ball of bloody gauze and my arms halfway up my armpits. I said, please, I need medical attention. He said, no medical attention until you cooperate with us, answer questions. So this went on for 10, 15 minutes, maybe. And he closed his book, got up, left the room. Guard came over, kicked me off the stool, back onto the concrete, shut the door. Some period of time later, maybe an hour, two, I don't know, door opens, come back in, jerked up by the arm, sit on the stool, interrogator comes in, same type of questions, you know, and I, said, I can't tell you that. I said, please, I need medical attention. And this routine went on for the next three days around the clock. Like I said, this big bulb, bloody ball of gauze here, and my arms were starting to discolor from lack of circulation from being jammed up in my armpits and I kept saying you know please I need medical attention medical attention and at one point one of the interrogators told me he said uh, he said you know you're dying he said we let you die if you don't answer our questions after that session I kind of had a meeting with myself and all right Ange, what are you going to do you know uh, I knew, boy, I was a hurting puppy. I was in bad pain. I mean, I'd never died before, but uh, this was dying. It wasn't much fun. But I got to thinking about, you know, I got a, a wife and I had three, three young daughters at home from between eight and three. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, damn, I don't want to die. But 
I'm supposed to adhere to the code of conduct. And, and uh, so I came up with a game plan in my head that next time through I'd start answering, try to answer some of these questions and maybe I could get some medical attention. So the next session, uh, when they start asking some questions, uh, okay, what ship are you from? You know, and I said, uh, I said, uh, Constellation. He said, you lie. He says, Constellation left the line. You from Midway. I said, oh, oh yeah, you're right, Midway. I'm sorry. I said, I'm in pain. I said, I'm confused. I, I, I was on a constellation one other time. And I forget. Yeah, this is midway. This is. I said, "Oh crap!" My first question, and it got me in a lie. And they wanted to know things about the capabilities, of the airplane, and this, and I just, you know, most of the times I just lied, and they wanted to know like uh, what's what targets are being targeted in here in the next few days, and I. I I was a lieutenant at the time, and I just played ignorance. I said, hey, I'm a, I'm a lieutenant. I, they don't give me that kind of information. I said, they don't, they don't tell me where I'm going to fly until I get in a cockpit, and they say, here, go fly here. And, uh, what kind of formations do you fly? What is the capability of the blah, blah, blah uh, system in your airplane? You know, and I, well, formation, I said, well, we just fly by like ducks going, you know, the leader's up front and everybody's behind him. If he gets shot down, somebody else moves up. He says, that's the way we do it. And he wrote that down. That pulled off a good one there. So after that session, I guess they convinced, okay, we broke him. He, we've got him to talk. So shortly thereafter, they came in blindfolded me. Put me in a truck and took me over to a hospital, I guess. I don't know, probably the same one John McCain was in uh, up in an area. They took me into this uh, operating room area, strapped me down to a, a table, uh, straps around my ankles and thighs and chest. And uh, two or three uh, physicians' assistants, I'll call them came in with the doctor and uh, they held my head and my shoulders in a place like that. And he pulls his hand over and he takes off all the gauze and looks at what's there. And uh, he gets a scalpel and he starts amputating my thumb. I screamed bloody murder because man, I can, well, I can still remember that pain. I said, please, please give me some anesthetic. I said, this is here, this, this hurts, it hurts. And he, his answer was, you have caused suffering in our country, now you must suffer. Eventually, Jack's captors moved him from New Guy Village to Camp Unity, a bigger section of the prison with cells that held 40 to 50 men. Each cell had a, what we called a SRO, a senior resident officer. Whoever was the most senior guy in that cell was like, he was the commanding officer of that cell, if you will. And uh, if another guy got shot down and a new, new POW came into a cell, they immediately compared 
data rank. And if the new guy was more senior than the other guy, well, he automatically became. So we kept a strict military uh, uh, posture there. It just drove the D nuts. And uh, the guy in that cell when I first came in there was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Kittinger. Now, that name may not mean anything to you, but Joe Kittinger was a guy that uh, back in the 60s or 50s, maybe, I don't know, um, jumped out of a balloon at uh, 70,000 feet or what it was, you know, and the first guy to this high, high altitude ejection and everything like that. And um, so I remember reporting in, I said to Joe, I said, uh, Sir, I said, I, I, I got a confession to make. I, of course, I was born and raised Catholic boy, an older boy and all that stuff, you know, so you got to get this off your soul. I, I, I still agonized in my own mind that I had, I had not lived up to the code of conduct because I had been a wussy and I asked, for, you know, I started giving them information, you know, although it was worthless, but I still broke the code of conduct in order to get medical attention for myself. That's the way I looked at it. I know it sounds stupid, but that, that's that's the way it was. So I went to him and I said, hey, I, I confessed. And I can remember having tears in my eyes doing it and said, I broke the code of conduct. I explained to him what happened. And uh, he said, uh, I had him on the shore. He said, don't worry about it, Jack. He says, we all did. And uh, he says they can break anybody if they want to. In January of 1973, Henry Kissinger and representatives of North Vietnam agreed to a ceasefire that provided for the withdrawal of American military forces from South Vietnam and the release of nearly 600 American POWs. The deal would come to be known as Operation Homecoming. From February to April, groups of POWs were released according to how long they had been held captive. The first group, which included Jack's fellow naval aviators, Everett Alvarez and John McCain, had spent six to eight years as prisoners of war. The last group was turned over to Allied hands on March 29, 1973. The total number of Americans returned was 591. Yeah, we came back with the last group of POWs and... Uh... 29 March 1973 on the last flight. Uh, they put us in the buses and they drove us through uh, Hanoi out to Keelong Airport. And we got to see uh, the work of the B-52s. They did a hell of a, a, hell of a job on that, that city. And um, finally we got the runway and mm, took off, lifted off. Still was pretty somber until we crossed the coast of North Vietnam and the pilot came up over the uh, intercom and he said, uh, gentlemen, we've just left the airspace of North Vietnam. We're in international waters over the Gulf of Tonkin. 
heading for Clark Air Force Base. And <laughs> Back in the world, Jack endured nine months of physical therapy and several surgeries. He was self-conscious about his missing thumb and unsure about his future. So I was thinking, you know, hell, I'll never get back in the cockpit. I won't be able to fly anymore. Feeling sorry for myself. And, uh, and you know, kind of always putting his hand out of the sight when people, I don't, I don't know. It's a fire pilot ego, you know how that is. And I remember one day my brother, younger brother, he was there visiting with us. And uh, he said, hey, Jack, what the hell are you doing with your hand in your pocket all the time? I said, well, he said, take your hand out of your pocket. He says, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of. So he got wounded. So, okay. That comment from his kid brother relit the fire in Jack. He earned a master's degree and got his flight status back by showing the Navy that he could still operate everything in the backseat of a jet fighter. In 1974, he joined Muggs at Top Gun just as the new F-14 Tomcat was arriving. He served as the XO at Top Gun until 1976 and retired from the Navy nearly 20 years later in 1995. For those of you keeping score at home, that's 39 years of service, counting his time in the Army and the Army Reserves. During his military career, he accumulated more than 3,000 flying hours and made more than 800 carrier landings in F-4 Phantoms and F-14 Tomcats. In April of 1973, Jack and Muggs received their Navy crosses. The medals had been approved in August of the year before, and the Navy had tried to give Muggs his while he was at Top Gun, but Muggs wasn't having any of it. At the time, Jack was still listed as MIA, and so Muggs refused to accept his Navy Cross until Jack came home and they could receive them as they had earned them. Together. Lieutenant Commander Michael Doyle did not survive the enemy missile that struck the F-4 he and Jack were flying together. His remains were repatriated in 1986, and his name is located on the wall at panel 1 West, line 69. Big thanks to Jim Knotts for conducting this interview with Jack Ench. As with most of the interviews we collect for this podcast, this one was edited pretty heavily for time. If you'd like to hear it in its entirety, check our YouTube channel in a week or two. We'll be back here in two weeks with more stories of service, sacrifice, and healing. We'll see you then.